Welcome to the supporting cast. This is Eli Goldsmith. Today's guest is Paul Stanley, singer, guitarist, and co-founder of the legendary rock band Kiss, which has sold more than 75 million records worldwide during a career spanning nearly five decades. And they're still at it. As recently as New Year's Eve, yes, this past New Year's Eve, Paul Stanley was performing on a massive stage in Dubai, adorned in his trademark star child face makeup and high heels. But that's the Paul Stanley you do know. What you might not know is that Paul was born without a right ear, leaving him deaf on his right side. The subject of childhood taunting, Paul vowed in his youth to become a rock star, and then did. In this episode, Paul describes growing up in New York as the child of Jewish immigrants, his successful and complicated partnership with Gene Simmons, and how the values of work ethic and gratitude have imbued Paul's entire life, both as an artist and as a father. This is The Supporting Cast. Stanley, welcome to the supporting cast. It's great to be here. Thank you for being here. I know you've been traveling, which I'll hear about in a moment. But first, kind of, we're, we're starting off. We're obviously amid this pandemic, amid this holiday season. There's been a surge in Los Angeles. First, I just want to ask, how are you doing? How are you and your family, you and your wife and your kids, kind of doing during this unique time? Well, he takes <laughs> he takes a, a big breath. Um, <laughs> I think that uh, the first three months or so were really surreal because we didn't know what we were dealing with. And that made it that much more frightening. Not that it's not now, but uh, I would say that the first three months, we virtually didn't leave the house because we didn't have any sense of parameters of of what we were dealing with, how contagious it was, what was the uh, medium that it, it went through to get to you. So since then i think uh we've adapted well mm-hmm. um nobody ever could have foresaw this happening uh the idea that you're more uncomfortable around people that don't have masks on is uh <laughs> yeah it's an right. interesting phenomenon look the the death toll is horrific for some people this has been an inconvenience and for others it's been devastating i i'd like to think that the good that comes out of this is that people begin to realize how important they are to each other yeah, and, and that whether it's um, a physical presence or just a, a psychological or an emotional presence, that we really do need each other, and and we can be a uh, medicine certainly short of a vaccine, but we we can really help each other through this, and maybe in the future we'll realize the the value that we have to each other beyond just uh, amusement. Yeah, well, you had mentioned that this past summer that your family had spent some time on the beach and you'd been bike riding every day and spending time as a family and that that was sort of a silver lining to this because you might be off on on some rock tour, but you were kind of home with your family. I spend quite a bit of time home. I try to arrange the tours so that I have the optimal time and maximum time with my family. Um, But that being said, you know, even even in, in these tough times, you can find 
new avenues, new avenues yeah. of expression, uh, new avenues, just outlets for what's pent up inside. I started bike riding this summer. Yeah, and, so you uh, said, yeah. Yeah, when we're done with this uh, conversation, I'll head out and ride 25 miles. And, and wow. that, that's a sense of freedom. There, there's really uh, so much still out there to, to be enjoyed. I, I tell people, look, the world is still open. Obviously, we have different restrictions than we did before, but uh, get out, get out yeah. and, and live or find some way to express your your pain, your joy, whatever's going on. Well, and you're also an artist. As, I mean, in addition to being a musician and a songwriter, you're an artist of other, another kind as well. Yes, I've had a, an incredibly successful career in, in painting, and uh, yeah. I would have to say it was unexpected. And if uh, credibility comes from being a starving artist, I will never have credibility because, <laughs> thankfully, I haven't starved. Um, right. But that came about really as, a, as I was saying earlier, it came about because I, I needed an outlet for things that were going on in my life at that time that were a bit tumultuous. And I found that painting was a way to almost do stream of consciousness with color. And yeah. at some point someone saw some of my works and said oh you should do a show and i i was uh doubtful about the the idea and lo and behold i sold works and uh and not charitable i i, I uh sold them at, at prices that surprised me a bit and that yeah. was the start but you're still playing music as well, and you just got back from Dubai yes. playing a New Year's Eve show, which will boggles my mind and probably will surprise most people listening. How were you able to play a concert kind of during a, a pandemic halfway across the world? It was challenging. Uh, it was challenging, but I also think it was, it was needed. And mm -hmm. if it could be done in a way that was safe, you know, this has been a, a really tough year for everybody. Mm -hmm to see some light at the end of the tunnel in the form of a vaccine is uh, terrific. I, I still caution people and tell them, look, the vaccine means nothing unless you're vaccinated. So <laughs> let, let's keep that in mind. When we were planning Dubai, we had 500 people on a crew building this enormous stage and everybody was COVID tested daily. Wow. And uh, the uh, health requirements and restrictions that we we put in place through um, experts were uh, very, very stringent. We rehearsed here in a, a lockdown facility hmm. and we were tested. When we flew over, we flew Emirates, which uh, did a terrific job. They had the crew and everyone was in PPE. They have a hospital grade filtration system. So, and wow. we wore a mask. We wore a mask for 16 hours. Um, and then when we got there, we basically quarantined until showtime and broke some records for the most pyro and all kinds of uh, <laughs> amazing outdoor uh, spectacle. It was beyond anything certainly I, I've ever seen, and I've seen a lot. So yeah, uh, <laughs> after it was done, we went back to the hotel, showered, and basically ran back to the airport, and I was home New Year's Day. Wow. And so in terms of an audience, it was mostly a streamed audience or were there folks there yes. live as well? There were about 3,000 people there. It was outside. Mm -hmm. um, they were primarily on the other side of a pool. And then the rest of them were on balconies in the hotel. 
So ah. we were quite a distance from people. And from what I understand, the Atlantis Hotel there had tested everybody. So, you know, it, it's very easy for each one of us to take care of ourselves. But um, we also have to make sure that everyone else within our realm, uh, yeah. if possible, is taking care of themselves. So it was uh, daunting. But I, I really believe people needed to see some spectacle. And in the midst of all this, nobody should feel guilty about having a good time. You, you yeah. still were all dealing in a very somber, intense situation. But when this hit back in March, I mean, I know you guys were sort of amid this end of the road tour. Mm -hmm. What was in place that had to be canceled or, or altered? Kind of where were you in terms of the, the course of this tour when that happened? We were fortunate. We were about to end one of the legs of the tour, meaning that one specific section of the tour of dates was almost done. Mm. We did Los Angeles, and uh, I think we, we made it to about three other shows after that. And I just remember before everything was mandatory, before the mandatory shutdown, I found myself, I was going to be on CNN talking about <laughs> going through the pandemic and still being out there and touring. And it became real clear to me that the experts that we were listening to and watching on television and, and in the media were saying that this was spread through physical contact. And I thought to myself, well, what am I doing going on TV, telling people we're out there playing and come see us when mm. I know that that's not advantageous and it's counterproductive. So I bailed out of my appearance and, and they were very, very agreeable and understood. And uh, basically we were in Texas and uh, I said, we should go home. Well, I don't know why we're here. Hmm. Um, but it's time for us to go home. And lo and behold, it was just a day or two later that uh, the plug was pulled on every concert that was out there. Wow. We did about 120 shows and we have about another 120 to go. Um, wow. Yeah. So, <laughs> and that's all over the world. Yes. It's a right. big world. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> after, after 50 years of being in a band, there were a lot of people to go see. And uh, we're in a very fortunate position because I, you know, usually when something ends, whether we lose somebody in our lives or a relationship ends, we find ourselves going, gee, if I had only known, I would have done this differently or that. And here yeah. we are saying, you know, we can't physically do this endlessly. You know, you can play beat the clock, but the clock wins. Um, if mm -hmm. we were on stage wearing t-shirts and jeans, we could do this forever. <laughs> <laughs> but when you're jumping around in eight inch heels and carrying 30 or 40 pounds of gear and wow. making it look easy, you know, at some point you realize that you just can't keep doing this. So to be able to announce this is it um, yeah. and to do it on the best of terms, the band gets along super. I've never had more fun with everybody, but mm. we, we need to recognize that even if we wanted to, it's just not physically possible for us to do this uh, nonstop. There's nobody my age playing basketball, football. An athlete has a, a certain time span that they can do what they do. And uh, I'm, I'm way outside of that limit. But it's great to hear that the band's getting along so well that you're having so much fun. And then you're playing, I mean, you guys are playing stadiums. Yeah, stadiums, well. stadiums, arenas. Some of the shows that we had to postpone were outdoor festivals where we would have 100 plus thousand people. So wow. 
it's uh, very telling when you're more comfortable in front of 100,000 people than in front of 10 people. But that's yeah. uh, part of our makeup. And what's the key to the relationship between the band? I know you have a couple of members of the band that haven't been there the entire time, but especially with you and Gene, who've been there since the beginning. Obviously, you, I'm sure you've had your ups and downs, but what do you credit to that relationship still maintaining strong to this day and still going out and entertaining so many people? I think that there's no substitute for time. And mm -hmm. um, time builds trust, and time also allows you to see what is possible and what's not possible for somebody. So if over time you don't expect something unrealistic, you're not disappointed. But uh, in Jeans, in my case, we've been together since we lived at home with our parents. <laughs> um, yeah, which I and, want to get to. <laughs> yeah, and, and we've made amazing lives for each other. And uh, I think we're more thankful now than ever. But huh. um, the bond we've always had was the sense that hard work is integral to things succeeding. And um, there are no shortcuts. Mm -hmm. And you deserve to be paid what you're worth for the work you do. And we're hard workers. We're survivors in many senses. Mm -hmm. And um, time has only seen us grow closer. But I've never thought for a minute that we wouldn't be together. And the band, to me, has always been at the core of uh, certainly my life, shares a space with things that ultimately are probably more important or should be more important, family and friends. Mm -hmm. um, but it's availed me a lot of great opportunities. And I think that if you don't realize how fortunate you are, then you don't deserve that good fortune. And I think everybody in the band shares that. Eric, our drummer, has been in and out of the band, primarily in. He's been here 25 years at least. And mm -hmm. Tommy's been in the band for about 17 or 18. So yeah. there's a real strong work ethic and a real strong pride in what we do. We've built something on a uh, foundation of entertaining and giving people their money's worth and uh, respecting our audience. And, and the band, I think, resonates and carries that forward now probably more than ever. We have a lot more to live up to. Um, mm -hmm. Whatever legend there is of us is what we <laughs> carry onto the stage. And when people see us, they they have big anticipation of what they're going to see. And yeah. we're we're proud to to live up to that. Yeah, and you carry a lot. I mean, look, five hundred people to build build the stage. You have a lot of folks who you bring with you on the road, who who I'm sure are working very hard, and oh. and uh, I'm sure that work ethic permeates the entire tour and the entire show. I do think so. I, th I think yeah. um, as hard as people work around us, they invariably come back over the years. And I think mm. it probably has to do with, I don't ask anything of anybody or a quality of work from anybody that they don't see I expect from myself. And yeah. uh, it, it's one thing to push other people to work but I think you lead by example. And when yeah. people see how much dedication there is by the band and how much it matters to us, then it matters to them. Well, I want to get to kind of your foundation. And uh, so you grew up in New York. I did. Is that right? I did. Yeah. 
and you were not born Paul Stanley. No, I, I wasn't. As well. No, <laughs> what I was wasn't. Your, what's your birth name? My birth name was Stanley Eisen, Stanley Burt Eisen. And uh, from the <laughs> a time- A nice Jewish boy from New York. <laughs> a very, I don't know about nice, you know, but a, a Jewish boy from New York. And yeah. uh, my mom was, she came here during the war, during World War II. They fled Germany. My mom was born in Berlin. And uh, since then, I've gotten records and accounts from historians over there who did research. What they went through was not only mind-boggling, but would make a film. My uh, my grandfather got a call at night that the family was going to be arrested in the morning. And they literally packed only old clothes, nothing new, took their car, which was a new car or a fairly new car, drove it to the train station, left it there, separated, went into different cars of the train and traveled little by little and made their way to Amsterdam and then ultimately fled from there. Mm -hmm. But uh, that's my mom's story. My dad was uh, first generation here. His parents were from Poland. And um, as far as my name, <laughs> I always hated my name, which was really funny. <laughs> and um, I used to say to my parents when I was little, I don't like my name. And they would say, <laughs> Well, when you get older, you'll change it if you want. Well, I don't think that they, I, I reminded Expected them. Expected you take it literally. <laughs> yes, but I reminded them. You said, it's. I, I think it's very interesting because people say, well, what's your real name? And it's a, a, interesting when uh, somebody would say that because your real name is what you choose. Your given name is somebody else's idea. So if the two correlate, I mean, if the name that somebody gave you is a name that you like, then as we say, Mazel Tov. I, I don't think I've ever said that before, but now would be a good time to say it. But in my case, it, it never felt right. And uh, yeah. I've been Paul Stanley far, far, far longer than I was ever Stanley Eisen. Uh, and of course, the Stanley is from your first name, but Paul is in part because of Paul McCartney. Is yes. that right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Paul McCartney. Um, Paul Rogers, uh, another great singer. It was a succinct name, a one-syllable name with a two-syllable second, um, vi or vice versa. It just seems to be the way of all my English heroes, you yeah. know, um, Pete Townsend, Keith Richards, John Lennon, <laughs> John Lennon Jimmy Page, Mick um, Jagger, <laughs> Mick Jagger. So uh, when the time came, and it, it certainly was advantageous, I believe, to have a, a moniker that people would remember and not to shun ethnicity, but a little bit more homogenous, you know. Um, yep. Let's not kid ourselves. When, you, when you're a product, whether you're an entertainer or, or what have you, you want a name that, that, that works. And so you grew up, what part of New York did you grow up in? What was your parents' profession? I grew up First, uh, 211th Street and Broadway, which is all the way uptown. It almost, it, it pretty much borders Riverdale. It's an area called Inwood. Primarily, it was a Irish Catholic neighborhood when I grew up, although there was a section not too far from me where a lot of refugees, Jewish, German, and, and uh, refugees who fled during the war mm -hmm. uh, had settled. But uh, on my block, you know, we were the only Jews. Um, <laughs> it was interesting. Everybody else was uh, pretty observant in in their Catholicism, and mm -hmm. um, I, I guess we were 
you know, a head scratcher for some people. Um, yeah. My mom had wanted to be a doctor and my grandfather had put away money over time so that she could go to medical school. But in fleeing Germany and then fleeing Amsterdam, uh, making their way to America, those funds were used up. My mom became a registered nurse. And then after that was a, a teacher's assistant for in a school for um, children with mental issues, deficiencies. Mm -hmm. Then she had odd jobs and, and such to bring in income. And my dad graduated high school at 16 and by rights really should have gone on to college. But his family pushed him to help contribute financially because of that he didn't do college. Uh, my dad, incidentally, is over 100 right now. My dad is. Uh, and wow. So help me if you could take my dad's head and put it on another body. He's good for another 100 years. My dad is <laughs> completely in tune with everything that's going on in the world. Wow. Knows wow. knows where I am, wherever and can discuss anything on a daily basis, politics, business, it's astounding. I, I try to tell my kids, you know, when you're 100 years old, you're lucky if you know you're alive, you know. Um, and my dad is a great, great mind. But uh, he became a manager of an office furniture store in New York. Ah. And that's pretty much where he stayed. I think the one of the beauties of my parents were, was that their background was European stock. And in Europe, the arts are so important. It's yeah. not it's not a luxury or, or something that you do once in a while. It's it's bread and butter. You listen to great music, you go to museums, it's it's part of who you are. And I grew up in a household where the arts were just part of who I was and, and wherever my parents may have been deficient and God knows they lacked in certain areas, not not of their own doing, what I got from them was so rich in terms of exposure to to culture. What kind of schooling did you have, kind of elementary school, high school, and were there folks then, teachers, or people outside of formal education that inspired you in certain ways or inspired your love of music? Good question. And um, I also have to take into account who's going to listen to this. <laughs> and I have to caution that my success and the way I went about it is not something that I advocate for others. Okay. I didn't leave myself plan B. Mm -hmm. And for me, that made it all the more vital that I succeed. Hmm. But it also means that if it didn't work out, it would be catastrophic. So I, I really, I, I think education and a realistic self-assessment is vital to finding one's success. I think uh, in the same way that some people would see what I did as impossible or told me it was impossible, I really think that I would say to most people, you are capable of succeeding at anything you are truly capable of succeeding at. Now that sounds weird, but the, the truth is, I think that if you do a self-assessment and if you assess all your weaknesses and strengths, then you should know what you're capable of doing. Look, if I had decided to become a mathematician 
it would be folly. I, <laughs> that's not my strength. But <laughs> if you're willing to be brutal in a self assessment, then the only thing that separates you from success is hard work. And so how did you, how did you make the assessment that, cause I remember asking you once, when did you know that you want to be a musician? You had said pretty, said early on, I want to be a musician. I, I want to be a rock star. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, <laughs> which I thought was so cool, which is, which is cool and crazy. And, <laughs> yeah. and, and, uh, but coming from you, it's, it's pretty cool. Paul. Thank you. <laughs> um, I do believe that there are moments in your life that you can have an epiphany or, yeah. or, or come into contact with a part of yourself. And, um, you need to listen to that. I was one of those people who really wasn't cut out for school. Mm -hmm. Um, I had a, a hearing, I am deaf on my right side. I had a, that's right. I had yeah. a birth defect called a microtia. I didn't have an ear on the right side. So there was a lot of scrutiny teasing on top of that. I, I really couldn't hear very well. It, it affected my, my learning in school. If I lost hmm. mid sentence, what was going on, I was done. And back then teachers and, and, uh, people weren't, weren't that aware of those kind of learning disabilities or putting two and two together. So um, I was just deemed lazy and not mm -hmm. living up to my potential. And uh, it was, you know, I'm sighing. It was tough. Um, yeah. It was tough. So I found solace in, in, in music and in art. And that's what I aspired to because innately, again, I knew I could do it. Don't ask me how I knew, because I knew it before I played an instrument. I had a good, a really good singing voice from the time I was a, a child, as did my whole family. We were like the dysfunctional Von Trapp family, you know. <laughs> I was inspired. I, I had no mentors, so to speak. Yeah. I found inspiration in people whose work I admired. And who were some of those people? Beethoven. Beethoven. Mm -hmm. uh, creating music when he was deaf, you know, putting his ear to something so he could hear the vibrations and turning out this glorious, amazing music, the Emperor Concerto, just a heroic, beautiful piece of music. Um, Picasso, Picasso, everything was art, whether it was fish bones, you know, and a bowl, or it was um, painting. And Picasso was great in that he said, if I had to describe myself and my art, I'd say I'm a, a, an artist without a style. I think that's great. He went mm -hmm. through so many different periods and maybe that's what life's about going through different periods. You know, as time has gone on, I, I believe that uh, bucket lists are the antithesis of, of what we should strive for, because if you fulfill everything on your bucket list, then you're not living because every time you cross something off, you should see a new horizon. You should see something new. So um, mm -hmm. that's really been my whole life has just been following inspirations, musical inspirations, yeah. art inspirations. And uh, I don't want to and never have lived within the boundaries or the limitations that other people either have or are threatened and want me to live within when you were dealing with that as a kid and feeling different and uh were there folks in your life who were supporting you through that or 
um, encouraging you or was it you kind of looking out to these either artists or other musicians and going, you know, if I can mm -hmm. use this inspiration to get out of these circumstances, I can sort of rise above it. It that was way. really more that, um, yeah, I don't really believe in for the most part, tough love. I don't think that yeah. the idea of telling somebody who's not like everybody else, you're just like everybody else. Well, that shuts them down immediately because, Hey, Ma, mm -hmm. hey, Dad, I'm not like everybody else. Okay, now what do we do about it? Yeah. So that, unfortunately, wasn't something that I got at home. And it made me all the more determined that I'll show everybody. You know, they'll wish they had mm -hmm. been nicer to me or fame and success is going to bring me happiness. And I was fortunate to find fame and success because at that point, rather than being disappointed, I kind of went, Okay, well, now I have that, and I'm still not happy. So yeah. it can be an eye-opener. At that point, some people put needles in their arms or guns in their mouths. I just rolled up my sleeves and said, what's it going to take? You know, what, what is it that, that's missing or what, what is going to make me happy? And so let's get to sort of your, your teenage years or early 20s when you're starting to play music and you meet Gene Simmons through this band Wicked Lester. Wasn't that the original yeah. band? And yeah. mind you, Gene Simmons was Chaim Witz, <laughs> who then became Gene Klein because uh, his uncle's last name was Klein. But Gene was born Chaim Witz. And uh, <laughs> we met through a mutual friend or uh, somebody we were both playing with uh, musically, although not together. He introduced us, and I was not very fond of Gene. And... Uh, found him abrasive and very opinionated. Huh. But over time, I also realized pragmatism is really important in life. Sometimes you have to take into account what's important to you. You know, what is your objective? What are your goals? And then you may have to reassess who you like and who you don't like and for what reasons. Hmm. I was much stronger with Gene there. First of all, I was less lonely, hmm. but he also had shared a work ethic with me and was also talented. So uh, that was the, the start of uh, us working together. And at times it was maddening for me because uh, hmm. we were very, very dissimilar. Although there were things, yeah. our parents' backgrounds, there were things that we shared in common. But again, it was a means to an end. There were times that I certainly tolerated things that I was not pleased with. And look, yeah. I'm no I'm no picnic sometimes, you know. <laughs> so so I'm sure he felt the same. And over the years we've had times where it's been tense, but tense like family. It it not mm -hmm. tense that you're going to uh, never see somebody. That's what family's about. The perfect story for me is uh, much, much later in the nineties we were going through a little tiff, basically not speaking to each other. And we had mm. the earthquake. I believe it was, uh, I can't remember whether it was 94, 90. Is this the Northridge quake? Yeah. Yep. I wasn't talking to Gene. As soon as the shaking stopped and I got myself a little together, I called him up. Are you mm. okay? Yeah. Okay. Drop dead, you know? <laughs> so, uh, you know, so, so Gene and I go way, way back to hitching upstate on the Major Deegan and on the thruway in New York to look for a guitar player. 
mm-hmm. hitching upstate on the highway, not having any place to stay. And uh, yeah. there's a, a bond there and uh, things weren't easy. Sometimes I think what makes things bearable is saying to yourself, one of these days I'll look back on these times and they'll be the good old days. And there were and yeah. there were times where I thought, you know, one of these days I'll look back on this and, and smile. And looking back, especially now 50 years later, are there, you know, sometimes it takes the perfect combination of traits between you and other band members to make a band great. And what are the things that he does that sort of make you better or make the band better? And what, what are the things that you feel like you brought that make Kiss so unique? It's a great question. You know, somehow we have dovetailed and yeah. uh, filled in gaps in each other. I think Gene can be pretty impulsive, which isn't necessarily a good thing because the result may satisfy you momentarily, but it can be on pretty shaky ground. Certainly there's been songwriting of his, particularly in the early days, where Mm -hmm. there would be a song once in a while that he might write where I'd go, well, I got to write a better version of that song. So Mm -hmm. we we were... uh, we were tennis rivals. Hmm. Um, mm-hmm. uh, we respected each other and um, made each other better. Yeah, we made each other better in so many ways. And sometimes yeah. it's difficult. You know, it, it's crazy when people sometimes erroneously um, simplify it to, oh, well, Gene's the business guy and Paul's the, the creative guy. And it, it's, it's, it's far from the truth. Yeah. The two really intermingle and have over the years. Am I more geared towards the, the aesthetics of things than he is? Yeah, yeah, but yeah. Um, it's not a, it's really not a yin and yang. Um, speaking of aesthetics, that's a good segue. We're all wearing masks now as part of <laughs> this uh, pandemic. You've worn a mask on your face, <laughs> so to speak, for decades as part of KISS. How did it come about that you guys decided to, to paint your faces? Gene and I in particular were huge Anglophiles and loved British Mm -hmm. music. Every week I would take the bus and the subway down to Greenwich Village to an international newsstand and buy Melody Maker, Sounds, and New Musical Express, which were the the three contemporary music papers in England, and just read about all these bands. Many of them never made it here, but they had showmanship and flair, Mm -hmm. some of them obviously made it to these shores, but that was our inspiration. Seeing all these bands, we just wanted to take what was being done over there, the next step. Over years, I've come to to think of it in in terms of commonality. The the fact that Mm -hmm. if you do something that satisfies you or fulfills a wish or a need in you, you will do the same for other people because we're all so similar. So if we could be the band we never saw, we would also be the band you never saw. Um, Mm -hmm. And if we gave ourselves the kind of show we wished someone else would do, well, then it's only logical that other people would feel the same. So uh, how we put on the makeup, Gene and I were just talking days ago, and we can't really pinpoint who did it or who started it. We had a a room, a loft on Tenney's 23rd Street in New York. And one day we went downstairs to a five and dime, five and 10 cent store, bought some makeup 
and a couple of mirrors, cheap mirrors, went back upstairs and started painting our faces. So <laughs> who, who started? No idea. It really was, let's take what's been done a step further. We've, we, we always saw ourselves much more aligned with um, Jimi Hendrix, uh, The Who, a lot of these English bands. We never thought our, of ourselves as contemporaries of Jefferson Airplane or, or, or any of the, the West Coast hippie kind of bands. We, we were always, yeah. the thing we loved from the beginning about those British bands, even before those, the ones I mentioned, was if you saw the Beatles, you knew they were all Beatles. You couldn't put one of the Rolling Stones in the Beatles. They just looked different. Hmm. Over here, you had people walking on stage looking like they just rolled out of bed. And <laughs> they depended on light shows, all these flashing lights and things behind them, frankly, because they were boring to look at. So we were, we were never taken with that. We were much more uh, about presentation and about entertainment. And that's really what it was born out of her. So it was that you were individually, because you were a star child, mm. right? You each had your individual look, but that there was cohesion with the face makeup and the the outfits that made you uniquely. Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't a matter of wearing a costume. It was yeah. about embodying part of who each one of us was. Mm. It would have come across false. Whether you liked it or not, it came across real. It wasn't mm -hmm. Halloween. I saw some other bands try it and they just, they yeah. missed the point. It, it, it didn't make any sense because it was paint on the outside as opposed to taking something from the inside. And what about Star Child took from you from the inside? I think I wanted to exemplify this golden era of stardom, of uh, yeah. larger than life, glamorous, flamboyant. I've always been totally comfortable in myself in terms of sexuality. so wearing red lipstick or anything like that didn't never, never crossed my mind that it, it represented anything more than comfort, comfort in, yeah. in who I am. And uh, if you can appeal to everyone as opposed to just the opposite sex, why not? You know, um, it, yeah. it, uh, it's just that simple. So it was uh, to kind of exaggerate flamboyance old-time movie stars being a star was always uh stars are cool and uh yeah. you know uh my look wasn't scary it was perhaps androgynous nobody would ever confuse me or, or take me for a, a mime or a, a ballet <laughs> dancer i'm a big guy you know and uh yeah if you didn't like the way i looked i could kick your butt <laughs> and so who comes to uh, KISS shows in 2020 or now 2021? Is it still fans from the 70s? Is it their kids? Is it their... We're, we're, we're so blessed. Yeah. We are three generations or more into this at this point. And um, wow. it's so much more than a rock audience. It's almost a tribe because most bands are very sensitive to their demographic and who they appeal to. Somebody in, a, in an audience at a certain rock band show would feel very uncomfortable that their little brother was there, or God forbid, their dad. We're not that. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. We're this huge secret society of people who all believe in the same thing. Everybody revels in that camaraderie and it's thumbs up from everybody in the audience. And you see people bringing their youngest children so that their children can experience the magic that they felt. You know, it's like the Lion King, you're holding, you're holding up the cub. Yeah. But it's a, it's a beautiful thing. We've never sung about anything except celebrating life, about mm -hmm. going against the odds, about self-empowerment, things that to some people over the years seem trite, but they're timeless. And that's why mm -hmm. some of the bands that we either grew up listening to or were out when we first came out are dinosaurs in the sense that what they were either doing musically or lyrically is just dated. Yeah. We may sing about things that some people think are corny, but they're the cornerstones of a great life. Well, to, to finish up, Paul, I have a few kind of standard questions that are part of the supporting cast. They relate to LA. Uh, we are known for our movies, our food, and our climate. So a few get to know you questions. What is Paul Stanley's favorite movie? I would have to say years and years ago, I loved Zorba the Greek, Anthony Quinn's movie. Mm. But I would say that my all-time favorite movies would probably be, it would have to be The Forrest Gump or Shawshank Redemption. Great ones. Yeah, good, good movies with uh, a lot of soul and a lot of heart. Very life-affirming. Yeah. I remember going years ago with an actress friend of mine to to a, a movie, and when it was over, I went, that's it? And she went, <laughs> yeah, you know, it's a slice of life. And I go, well, I live life. I want to, you know, I, I live life. I, I don't want to see some guy smoking a cigarette and cheating on his wife or whatever. I, you know, I, yeah. I, I, entertain me. Blow something up yeah. or, you know, Show me how great life is, but I, just a he went to the grocery store and then he came home and then, <laughs> whoa, no. not, not for me, thanks. <laughs> so I would say those two films uh, on different days. I would I would mention one or the other, but they're they're both just terrific films. Yeah. What's your favorite uh, meal in L.A.? It can be at a restaurant. It could be something uh, you and Aaron make at mm. home. My kids. My four kids, yeah. uh, they'll laugh at me, and so does Aaron, uh, because I'll make something and sit down and go, if I had this in a restaurant, I'd order it again. They think I say it about everything I make, but that's not true. <laughs> but uh, there's a joy in making something and sitting down to eat and going, wow, this is great. So I have to say that a couple of nights ago, uh, I made a, a rigatoni. I can give it to you in, 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 uh, as far as the ingredients, but it's, it's not a yeah. matter of just slopping it into a, a pot. It's a matter of adding things into the pan and, and what have you over time. So there was mushrooms and olive oil and fresh basil and rosemary and oregano, wasala wine, vegetable stock, Calabrian chili, mm. some fresh tomatoes, butter and a little bit of cream and Parmesan Reggiano. It was crazy. It was it, sounds it, amazing. It was so good. And I had to send <laughs> photos to all my my chef friends from 
Food Network and that kind of thing, just to get their assessment. I enjoy cooking, and uh, that's not mm-hmm. to say that I'm a I'm a chef. I'm a cook. Big difference. Yeah, you know, right. it, it denigrates yeah. chefs for me to say I'm a chef. Um, <laughs> I tend to say to a couple of them, I probably cook as well as you play guitar. Uh, what's your favorite place in LA? <sighs> Could be a part of town or a specific hmm. location. I'm always amazed at the diversity of of what's available you know you can go five hours away and be in in uh mammoth which is crazy good or or arrowhead which looks like upstate new york Mm -hmm. minutes rather than hours from the house is franklin canyon which is Mm -hmm. just beautiful and and uh yeah so serene i also love going to the beach not to get in the sand i'm not you know that that's not my thing um the ocean's <laughs> not my thing either it's uh i i always tell my kids nobody's ever been bitten by a shark in a pool so uh but so you'll stick to the bike I, ride i will stick beach, to right? the bike ride on the beach <laughs> last question i know you have a son in his mm. 20s um you also have three younger kids as well i have a two-year-old daughter mm. what is your best parenting advice either that you've been given or that is an original to you? I said it earlier. um, You lead by example. Kids can listen to what you say, but they'll see what you do. Mm. And that's the strongest impression you can make is is them following what your actions are rather than what you tell them to do. Beyond that, uh, I just think it's important to teach children the importance of morality, not just legality. People get so concerned with what's legal and illegal. And I go, well, what's moral and immoral? There are things that are unethical that are within the boundaries of the law. And I I think that the most important thing you can teach your children are ethics and morality. Hmm. And the best way to teach those is by not only saying your thoughts to them, but to to them seeing how you implement them. And I imagine given the career you've had and the way you you could treat people, (laughs) given your place in the rock world, probably treating people with kindness and respect when they come up to you on the street or at your concerts is, is a way that you can demonstrate that. Yeah. Those are the people who've made everything possible. And I try to tell my children all the time that those people deserve our respect and our gratitude because they make everything we have possible. And without them, we wouldn't be where we are. And it feels good. Mm-hmm. Another, another corny thing that I, I have to say is that giving or treating people well is a reward to me too. It comes back and, and yeah. it not only makes them feel good, it allows you to see the best in you. Mm-hmm. So, um, Practice what you preach. I mean, all these these sayings and whatever, they're they're around because they're true, and yeah. they've stood the test of time. I, I've seen some parents just be horrendous to their kids, and and uh, it's astonishing. Um, yeah, we want to leave the world better than when we came into it, and the way we can do that when all is said and done is by the children we leave behind. Well said, and so. Uh... 
Paul Stanley, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, good luck with the rest of this big tour. Your dad is 100. You may still be playing music at 100. I know you think maybe, maybe not in high heels and yeah, I, <laughs> 20 I would, or 30 pounds. Of I wouldn't want to see my dad in tights, you know. It's like... <laughs> well, thank you so much. Thank you so much. This has been The Supporting Cast. Thank you.